0: and welcome back to the Mom Mentality Show. My name is Chris Lucian and my co-host is Austin Chadwick. And today we have Esther Derby uh, with us and we're going to be talking about things like rethinking management and nurturing change in organizations. Uh, But first, Esther, can you maybe give a little bit of an introduction for yourself and then uh, we can get going?
1: Sure. Um, So I started my professional career as a programmer and I realized fairly early that while well, my job description talked about writing code and testing code and putting code into production, that uh, really a lot of my job involved changing people's work. And and so <laughs> I got interested in, in change uh, because of that and started noticing what it took to change things in organizations um, and how change affected people. I mean, so the, one of the first programs I wrote uh, Uh, it changed someone's job significantly, and they really didn't like it, made it faster, made it easier, but they really liked the old way of doing things. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting uh, thing to notice that early in a technical, in a technical career. Um, And because I was good at programming, eventually I was uh, promoted to be a manager, which is actually not a promotion, it's a job change. Uh, a career change. And uh, it's a completely different set of skills. So I had to, you know, learn a completely different set of skills and look at change from that perspective. So, yeah. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about change and thinking about management and that's what we're here to talk about.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, we can kind of dive into the first topic. Um, just rethinking management. Uh, so kind of what, what did you mean by that? What do you wanna get into there?
1: Well, in I, I still occasionally hear managers say, my job isn't to make people happy. My job is to get people to work hard. <laughs> and I think that that attitude, while it's not often said that directly, that that is one of the underlying assumptions of our whole model of, of business and organizations. And there are some assumptions that go with that, which is that if people are not uh, supervised, they won't work hard, slack off. Uh, and I think that is um, both deeply disrespectful. Um, it's also rather inhumane and awfully ineffective <laughs>
0: yeah. the is that kind of like the theory x theory y management styles sort of thing like uh you know uh, observing metrics about about someone and then punishing them for bad behavior you know bad poor performance versus uh um you know working towards a better environment you know that sort of thing
1: well, it's related to it in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is related to it, although I I um, I think it's important to explicitly acknowledge the underpinnings of management that we often don't think about, which was it, it as a profession emerged to extract maximum labor and maximum value from from other humans. And so that I think is, you know, kind of baked into some of the uh, assumptions behind the practices that we use. So while it's nice to say, oh, we have to think about a different theory of management. I think we also have to look at what are the assumptions of the existing structures, because if we don't pay attention to those, they just reassert themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think getting at the root, uh, is really important. And so I heard you address like, "Oh, the goal is to work hard, is to supervise and extract value. Uh, And so uh, if you were to replace those things, what would you replace them with if you were kind of addressing kind of the deeper philosophical goals of management, I guess?
1: (laughs) Well, create an environment where it's easy for people to do the right thing and do great work.
2: Mm, Gotcha.
1: Right, and so it's a, it's a, it's a just a very different focus. You know, how can we create an environment where, where, you know, doing great work and ha- being creative is just kind of a natural outcome of, of the environment we have created that people bring their own, you know, tendency towards creativity and generativity to the workplace easily.
2: Nice, yeah. nice, nice. Yeah. yeah so, kind
1: of like, uh, but it's actually. Um, There's a lot of research that says that people who are not stressed and who are, uh, who feel valued and who uh, have some agency are actually more productive and more creative.
2: Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think what I I suspect, you know, going back in time when I uh, adopted some of the assumptions early in my career that you were talking about and kind of just thought about that way, because that's like, that's the only game in town for management so to speak right uh, i wasn't myself a manager but just thought that that's the way it was um i guess one gut reaction to oh just create a good environment um, is you know well, what what does that look like like you do just like let them do whatever they want you have no review no you know you know so i, I think you know what what is your response to that kind of gut reaction to uh, let's focus on creating a good environment. Yeah.
1: Well, it's not all about foosball tables and ping pong tables, <laughs> for lunch or yeah. uh, having a beer tap at work. Um, although that seems to be what some people think is a great environment. Um, so I think about it as you know, you know, teams, uh, you know, do better when they have a handful of conditions, right? They have a clear goal. They know who they can count on. Um, they have a set of constraints that allow them freedom but keep them from flailing because they have too many choices or too many decisions to make. Um, they have the access to the material they need to do their work. They have access to the information they need to do their work. Um, and then, you know, it's likely that they're going to do well. You know, they have some feedback loops so they can self-correct. Um, but when those things are present, um, it's m- much more likely that collaboration and teamwork is going to emerge, and creativity is going to emerge naturally from that situation. Um, I think one of the most important things uh, that managers can do is, you know, when, when when you talk about information and understanding how your work fits in. I had a conversation a while ago with a, a an executive who was bemoaning the fact that he couldn't find anyone who could take initiative anymore. He said, I used to be able to find people who could just run with it, take initiative and do stuff. And now everybody I hire just waits around to be told what to do. And I suspect that that is not a personal characteristic of those people. It's related to the fact that um, knowledge tends to bifurcate in organizations. Where the people at the top understand the context and the market and the customers and the difference they're trying to make and the people at the bottom know how to do the technical stuff or the frontline stuff that they're doing and there's you know there's very little overlap i think of it as two little overlapping triangles and there's a little diamond in the middle where there's overlap and if we want to actually have um people have, who can take initiative right and and can make decisions at a local level. You have to make that diamond bigger, so the shared pool of understanding about context is greater, and the, the understanding of capacity is
2: greater. Nice, nice. oh, no, right on. And I guess uh, one temptation I've seen from uh, maybe from a distance, but I've seen I've seen it in organizations before is someone is oh, wow, yeah, that that seems like a better way to do things. And then, okay, I'm going to command and control it into being. <laughs> yeah, so, how, you know, let's say someone is convinced on kind of the why of this style of management. How, how do you suggest someone who's in an organization that, that's very much in this, uh, you know, um, maybe more traditional way of thinking Um start to impact the organization to, to act differently
1: <laughs> uh, well I think you have to do it um, carefully and incrementally mm-hmm. there's a there's an interesting paper because it's, it's been around for a long time it's from I think it's from it's from a sausage company where um, I'd have to look up the title of it um,
0: we can always include it in the show notes later.
1: <laughs> yeah. So 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 the the owner of this company decided, you know, oh, command and control is, you know, it's just not the way to go and people will be more creative and happier and more productive if we have a different style of working. And so he imposed that on people. And one that's not what they had signed up for and two, it was the same experience of, you know, you're telling me <laughs> How to how to do my job and how to be so it is still you know a command and control thing and so that incongruity uh, really got in the way and and this paper describes how how he realized that and set about um, shifting his the, the culture in his organization in a different way that was more inclusive and involved more people right in what they wanted things to be like. Um, there was another, uh, uh, another instance where someone was telling me about there was a corporate goal to be, uh, to be much more inclusive and to not have this strict layer of management. So they, they devolved a lot of the management responsibilities to the technical teams. In this case, I think they were oil field technicians wasn't software but so they they distributed all those management tasks to the team members and suddenly people started quitting (laughs) because they hadn't you know they didn't want to do administrative reports Mm -hmm. they didn't want to do all of that stuff they wanted to do their technical work and this thing was imposed on them and You know, they went to they went to a far more command and control organization where they could at least do the technical work that they really loved. So, you know, there is an inherent contradiction in trying to do this in a in a um, in a top down way. I think I think you can start with the intention, but then I think it works best when you can let people get their fingerprints on the change. So that they're involved in thinking about, you know, how are we going to make, how are we going to take on more responsibility? Um, How are we going to uh, take on more decisions rather than just dumping it on people? I mean, there's this weird kind of up down dynamic that happens when you just dump things on people who have been in a, a very controlled environment because they're hesitant to take a step because they have spent so long asking for permission. And so they hesitate and then the manager says, well, if you won't make a decision, I'll come in and make it for you. And then they're convinced that, oh, you didn't really mean it. And so it it, it can create that dynamic. So I, I think it has to be uh, done incrementally. It has to be done with involvement, but there are a lot of things you can do um, other than dump, you know, you, yeah. Dump empowerment on people, which I mean, it's, when you put it that way, it just sounds so ridiculous. But yet <laughs> It is It is what a lot of organizations do.
0: At, at one point, um, the, you know, I had. Uh, so we would kind of been forming a new department and, and one thing we had <laughs> done was just created a like kind of a management related Kanban. Um, and so it was just like tasks that could be picked up and. Uh, I was essentially the only one picking up tasks from that. And then, and then a lot of people started taking them on, but it was, it was kind of that same effect you described where it was like a lot of people were doing less technical work. And so then, uh, then we kind of realized that like we actually need to limit the throughput of how much uh, actual like, you know, quote unquote management related work needed to get done. And then that evolved later into other systems, but it it was just really funny because the the Kanban was interesting because it had like, it ended up having an unlimited amount of work on it. Uh, And so, so it was like, oh, okay, you know, now somebody can pick something up. And so uh, it was, it was kind of, it it grew to monopolize time uh, to a certain extent. So that was, that was really interesting. And then, and then putting kind of like total hour limits on it, I think, you know, fix the problem, but it it was, it was kind of an interesting experiment, um, in that Mm -hmm. direction. Um, and, and then in, in reality, you know, I think a a lot of it may be related to just habits. Um, you know, I think one thing that I, I do pretty often is, um, it's just, can I involve more people? So like I always, on my personal Kanban, I, I do have like a, could I bring in others, to to do whatever um, has come up, and uh, more than, more often than not, the answer is yes, and then that can like you know uh, incrementally <laughs> do that that sort of thing. So kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like a really interesting experiment, um, and it makes me wonder what do we think of as management work? Yeah. <laughs> what, what falls into that bucket?
0: Yeah. And, and that's, that's a good question because, um, you know, I, I think of it as multiple layers of stuff. Right. And so, uh, there is, uh, whatever the requirement of the company is for like HR related stuff. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. that's like, you know, so, so maybe you're a group out there and you have, um, and you, maybe you have a software team. And you have a greater organization that's doing other things other than software and so you're kind of like this little bubble this little ecosystem and so there's there's stuff that's required from the outside and then there's things that are inside and and so one one way i look at it is um what are the minimum things required from the outside and then and then segment that off compared to whatever's on the inside of the bubble sure and then um you know, and then you get into thing. So, so ignoring the stuff on the outside, then there's a lot of stuff where it's like, I think really traditional management is like, what is somebody going to do next? What is, you know, how are they going to do that work? Uh, who are they going to interact with to get that work done? Um, and, and those are things that the team, the team themselves could decide and, and you know, uh, and create processes themselves around and all other stuff. But more often than not, you know, a manager will come in and decide for everyone how those things will work. Um, And I think that maybe that's where um, this idea of rethinking management comes in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think about, I think about the core functions of management are to work on the system and to develop people. Yeah. Yeah. So, and sometimes I talk about that as enabling and enhancing. Mm -hmm. So enabling people to do great work, um, you know, enhancing uh, the ability of the system to function smoothly. Um, yeah. and, and that I think is a, an interesting focusing thing because it doesn't talk about assigning work.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it doesn't talk about um, supervision, right? I mean, there, it's a fallacy that the only feedback mechanism is the manager telling somebody how things are going. I think it's really important to build feedback into the work. And you know when you're delivering in small increments, you know you get you get that. When you have customer feedback, you get that. so people can course correct without necessarily having to have a manager
2: mm-hmm.
1: t- talk to them and supervise them closely. Um, but the other thing is like the you know the developing people part, uh, you may, you couldn't think of that as an HR thing.
0: Um, and many you, managers do, right. They, they say, you know, oh, our organizational development team is responsible for making our employees better, but they like that team is not, is going to know in general for the company, maybe what that is, but yeah, like, especially technical um, stuff.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, and and the processes I see come out of HR departments tend to be very long cycles. You know, we have our yearly or our quarterly, um, if you're lucky, quarterly conversation <laughs> about performance, and we have a yearly career development conversation. And, and I, you know, career development happens in small conversations that take place, you know, daily, weekly maybe in a little more formal way, quarterly, but those kinds of conversations, I think, just can get woven into any interaction you're having, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and I think, yeah, I, I've seen organizations where, uh, you know, I've been in organizations where the manager does all the things, Christian, you just talked about, or HR does it, and then I've been in ones where teams take on those things, yeah, they're deciding how they work, they're deciding how work it's, uh you know, prioritized. Uh, they've taken on the uh, ability to develop each other. It's part of their goals and mm-hmm. that they've agreed to that they've uh, chosen to take on is to help others grow and give feedback and those kind of things. Um, I guess one counter example that I'm interested in because, uh, and I'm not sure how to define management either, <laughs> management type work either. I like your definition with it's like you work on the people in the system, but then there's things like, Uh, we need to hire somebody or this documentation needs to be filled out for, you know, company policy X, Y, Z that's not directly related to product development. Let's say, um, uh, how, and, and, and I like what you said also that you want to be searching for people to build competency and then build autonomy. People who want to do the work, but Mm -hmm. what happens when there's work that needs to be done, uh, just because, you know, part of being a company, some of the stuff has to be done and, People don't want to do it. <laughs> is it just whoever's left holding the bag up the chain, or you know, you know what? What, what are your kind of are thoughts you talking on that kind about of scenario?
1: On a team yeah. level, or are you talking about some of the administrative work that often nobody loves to do?
2: I'm, I'm thinking more of the latter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um.
1: Well, I, you know, you look at it and say, is it really necessary? You know, it's a lot of the a lot of the stuff that um, that it seems to be required. It, there's no legal requirement for it.
2: Mm.
1: You know, there's no. Um, you know, there's. It, you, there might be a policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk, I talked. I talked to one person who said, "Well, we have to have a yearly performance review because then managers are forced to give feedback at least once a year." And so if that's, you know, if that's your policy, I mean, you've got a bigger problem <laughs> and, and people, people filling out the sheets saying, or the, you know, the tick box on their screen saying, yes, I, I did a performance review with this person and it's on file and triplicate. Um, that's, you know, but that, that sort of tick box isn't gonna solve the real problem, yeah. right? It's the ongoing conversation that's gonna deal with the issue. Right, so I look at is it necessary? You know, what are you really trying to accomplish, and does this paperwork in any way contribute to it? And and very often it doesn't.
0: Yeah. So mm. so uh, one yeah one thought I have there too is that um, you know just because it's not important to the person doing it, it might be. Uh, viewed as important by someone else and yeah and that also might be uh maybe a token of influence with them as well so if you're talking about influencing change in an organization and and your you know maybe that is also not the biggest fight uh in in line, you know in sure. front of you right and so sure. sometimes that sort of stuff ends up being good to do so that you can have uh, a easier conversation about something more important to change. So that's- Sure. yeah,
1: Sure. And if there is a legitimate reason that something is important, of yeah. course, then you say, I, I understand. I understand that from, you know, the requirements of your job, that makes a ton of sense. So, which says maybe there should have been a conversation earlier. Yeah. <laughs> but, um you know, there's a whole host of things that in organizations that got done just because, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, I have a piece of paper. What, what purpose does that paper solve? Yeah. What greater goal does it accomplish? You know, we, you know, we can take another box. Well, why are we taking that box? What are we really trying to accomplish with that?
0: Yeah. yeah. Root cause. Um, yeah. well, uh, you know, how do we change these things? How do we nurture change in organizations? Which is happens to be our next topic at, at yeah. exactly the right time. We should talk about it.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> um
1: carefully. Right. I mean, some of these things it's, you know, you, you, like these HR policies are, are very difficult to change. You have to get the approval of, you know, 17 vice presidents, um, but I think there are often things you can do to contextualize things and work around them in a way that uh, accomplishes what you need to. And you may have to deal with that process on some level. I mean, there's uh, one client I worked with, their, their job descriptions um, implicitly devalued uh, collaboration. Mm -hmm. and cross-functional work i mean this is very very common yeah uh and changing those definitions i mean it would have taken pretty much an act of god um (laughs) so what we did in that case was we contextualized it to you know in our in our group this is what this looks like Mm -hmm. and
2: you know
1: you know um in our group, you know, achieving technical excellence means that you are uh, helping more junior people develop their technical skills, right? So, so it's taking some of the focus off the individual stuff, I and mean, there are a whole bunch of different ways we we made said this is what it looks like in our organization because we weren't weren't going to be able to change those job descriptions.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think. I've liked that and I've seen that work well. Um, it's almost like kind of like a grassroots uh, walled off, might be too strong, but it, there's almost some sort of like facade pattern going on, right? Where it's like when the rest of the company says X, Y, and Z, here's what we mean by it in this group over here, right? You know, <laughs> and um, yeah, I've seen that work well, but because um, it, it allows experimentation and change to occur without an act of God, as you said, <laughs> without having risky conversations that involve you know, 17 vice presidents, as you said. Um, um, there is a part of it that I've seen made pe- people feel uneasy, like, hey, we're off doing things differently than the rest of the company over here. Um, have you ever dealt with that? And how, how have you coached that?
1: <laughs> well, I think there is a, um fallacy that everything has to be uh, consistent across an entire organization.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: they have to be coherent, but I don't yeah. I don't think it has to be the same in every single part of the organization. I mean, there may be some exceptions to that. You know, there are some ethical things that there's probably, you know, this is just the way we do things everywhere. We do not uh, threaten our colleagues. Yeah. Um, which you want, you may wonder why that came to mind, because I've seen that happen. Um, but, it, you know, so there are probably some that are universal, but in, in, in most systems over a certain size, there are lots of different ways things work, right? I mean, the whole, the whole idea that everything has to be the same across the whole organization is a very mechanistic view and doesn't reflect the complexity of the organizations we work in. So, you know, I try to talk about well, what's what, What's the same and what's different about these groups and why would we wanna do it slightly differently in this group? And then you set up sort of guardrails that says, okay, this is the intent we're, we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, this is what we don't wanna have happen. This is what we, you know, these are the like, kind of the abhorrent things that we absolutely don't want to have happen. And then within there, we have freedom. So we're accomplishing the goal, you know, of you know, in the example of the contextualizing the job descriptions of people understanding their work and being able to think about, well, what do I need to accomplish in my job? But it was, it was um, coherent with an area that was trying to work in a very collaborative cross-functional way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I've seen that too. Like it, it's almost analogous. Hmm. Maybe the light bulb's going off for me. So like in product development, if you're delivering daily um, and you're providing value, uh, usually stakeholders or customers don't really care how you're delivering it. Right. You know, they, they, they back off more on like micromanaging, you know, and concern about how you're doing it, whether you're, pairing, ensembling, mobbing, or TDD or not TDD, you know, it's like, they're just like, oh, I just see value coming out consistently for years. This is, you know, uh, you know, happy, happy outcomes, right? And maybe there's a corollary with organizational change is that if in an organization they see the output of this bubble being uh, continuously good, they're going to care less about consistency and everything being the same and You know, following a traditional style of thinking, and
1: uh, yeah, I mean that works. That works often, doesn't mm -hmm. always work. I mean, because sometimes it's like, oh, you're doing so well over there, you're making the rest of us look bad. (laughs) Stop! We must quash this. I mean, that Uh that does happen, and there are there are organizations where the belief that everything has to be the same everywhere is very very strong, which leads to all sorts of inefficiencies. I mean, if if everything is the same, then fine, make it the same. But I see very few organizations where that's true.
2: Mm, Yeah,
1: yeah. Things have to match on the interface, but they don't necessarily have to match everywhere.
2: Right, right, right. Nice. I heard you mention earlier that um, you said it's good when you're uh, trying to nurture change, uh, whether it's a team organization to... uh, Enable, ask, or get people's fingerprints on it. Um, yeah. Do you mind giving some practical examples of what, what that might look like in the uh, in situation?
1: Well, um, so I, I was uh, uh, talking with someone several months ago who had designed this beautiful process. Um, to accomplish, I don't remember what it was, but you know, she, she had completely designed this process um, that she then presented to the people who were supposed to carry out this process. And she got to the end of her very, very polished presentation uh, where she told them exactly how they would be doing their work and then said, is there any feedback? And everybody just kind of sat there. Her response was that that was a deficiency on the part of the, the the people who wouldn't speak up, but she didn't leave any room for them.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: I mean, she had this polished presentation with all the details worked out in her mind. I mean, I'm sure they were not actually um, accurate because she didn't know the you know the day to day of the work. But there was no room for them to comment. So I think it's much, you know, you involve people earlier. If you show people a proposal, you leave some, you know, some rough edges on it. So there's something for people to smooth off uh, for them to have their input to talk about what the, you know, the actual day to day details are, because, you know, someone in a different role who has never done the job probably can't anticipate them all. So, I mean, that's one way. you know, involve people earlier in the process, mm-hmm. help them, have them help design it or? Did that answer your question?
2: That does a lot. And I guess I did have one follow-up question to that is sure. in context, by the way, that pattern I've seen work really, really well. Um, yeah. and, it, and I applaud it and I, I strive to do it all the time. And that's part of the joy of uh, mob programming or collaborative work is that uh, once you reach a level of, um, you know, candor and psychological safety, you're expressing half-baked ideas, you're leaving rough edges, and you're working it out collaboratively as a group. I I heard a, I saw a tweet the other day that was talking about writers for a a TV show or movie, and they sit around a table and they're just throwing out half-baked ideas, and then they're collectively kind of writing the script together. And I'm not sure that's how it's always done, but at least in some TV shows and movies, that's how it's done. And so I've seen it work really, really well in, you, know, con, you know, for technical product development as well. The, the one thing I've seen it hit a ceiling is when it's in an organization where leaving any rough edges or leaving something not full all the way thought through is then seen as a negative thing for whoever did that, right? So if you're in a meeting, if you're in a discussion, if you're in a presentation and you decide to open it up hey let's decide this one thing together uh this one piece um you know it's or let's leave something open-ended for you know the group to figure out or half-baked even it's seen as like oh you're not doing your job on thinking this all the way through therefore i think less of you now in this role you're doing Um, and so uh any any advice for that difficult situation
1: Well, I think you have to, you have to kind of read, uh, the situation you're in and, Mm um, you know, if, if, uh, you're in a situation where you take something to, you know, the people who are going to approve it and they expect perfection, then you try to get it as well done as you can, but maybe you involve people before you show it to them. Mm. Right. Um,
0: Yeah, I I think um, one thing that I'm reminded of is I did a a workshop with uh, Esther and Don Gray and and uh, years ago, and that was really good. And and one of the things that I I quote often and I think I've quoted on this show often is the center, enter, turn uh, dynamic. And um, this idea that once you're part of the system, you're it's a little bit easier to change the system. Uh, but first, you need to understand it and become a part of it, and then and then shift it. Um, you know, once you have that buy-in, and so uh, sometimes, you know, e- even if you may disagree with the mechanics of what they're doing, I find that uh, you know, going through that exercise a few times to to then have influence about the process, uh, so that you can make that suggestion is is a really powerful thing. And so, and Esther, I, you know, I took that. that quote directly from you and uh and I I think it's served me very well uh you know across the years here so (laughs) those yeah
1: yeah so I mean you know to to a certain extent you know you you become the system you're in right you take on some of the assumptions of that and it's it you know it is um it takes some practice to kind of separate yourself from the system, right? And and, and maintain some observer view about what is the system I'm in and what behavior is it um, influencing so that you can remain more choiceful. So if I were in a situation where, um, you know, coming in with something that wasn't, didn't look polished was going to uh, be career limiting, I might make it look polished but I might, you know, approach it differently when I was putting things together. Mm. And I might then talk about, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't come up with this all on my own. I had a lot of input from other people who brought really good ideas and helped make it a much more robust proposal or mm. candidate or whatever it is, which um, is less risky than going in with something that's not polished I mean you may still run into a, a some someone who is, is is stuck on the idea that it's all individual effort and and doesn't realize that most most marvelous innovations have come through through collaboration and juxtaposition of different ideas that are they're still very you know wedded to this idea of the uh, you know the lone genius or coming up with this stuff which
0: yeah. You know, was, our
1: culture tends to love that idea.
0: Yeah, and and I was I was kind of in a in in a situation just like that where it was like extremely high uh, stress, high visibility, must be mm-hmm. perfect, and and my strategy in in that particular scenario was to go to all the people I knew who were the biggest detractors of the idea and get them involved in working on it. One one on ones, like I just did one on ones with the people that I knew, just utterly hated the idea <laughs> and uh and just get get as much of their feedback as possible incorporated into into the solution um and and uh because I, I think a lot of the time you know it's different if the person won't give you the time of the day but it's a lot of the times people will disagree with you openly but they don't have any they don't hold anything against you and, and so finding those people um, can be a very powerful mechanism in that regard. Yeah,
1: that's that's a really interesting strategy because one, you you know, they may have legitimate reasons to be concerned about it, yeah. about the idea, and then it's great to learn about what those are. and you know, maybe you haven't thought about this aspect of it. Um, but if they invest a little time in you, Right, by having that conversation with you, there, you know, that's an investment, and so then they care more about their investment, right? Yep. Okay. And yeah. there, 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 um, there's a reciprocity that starts there mm-hmm. that uh, can can really result in much more support for an idea. So I th- I think that's a that's a really great strategy.
2: Yeah, and and light bulb just went off for me that you know you know so i was gonna restate what you were you and uh esther you and chris were saying uh that like okay if perfection polished is expected you do it for a while until you're part of the system and then you can suggest it differently and i really liked what chris and you said about involving people earlier and it reminds me of something in a previous organization that was seen as an anti-pattern but maybe it's a necessary anti-pattern as like a incremental step to the bigger change which was it was called the meetings before the meetings. So, because the the high risk meeting was the one where, you know, maybe not perfection, but very polished. I, I'm not just giving problems. I gotta give solutions to every problem that comes up. You know, it's like this very like high expectation for this presentation or discussion or meeting, right? It's definitely not expected to be a collaborative uh, discover together type meeting. And so what people did is they would have a lot of meetings before the meeting yep. to, so that when it came time for the performance, basically everyone at the meeting has already worked on the idea, worked on the problem. And uh, and so basically no one's hearing anything new, it's just this performance for everybody. But uh, covertly, people have worked collaboratively to have this performance at the end. And I'm, I'm, my gut feel is that overall it's an anti-pattern because it's, a, it's an environment where you're expected to not collaborate and just to deliver individualistically. But maybe it's a baby step to a, a uh, grander change. Uh, I'm not sure. What are your thoughts there?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like people were collaborating. They just didn't call it that.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, um, so it, on one hand, it preserves the illusion that people had necessarily a good thing, but um, yeah. you know, collaboration was happening. It just was, as you said, it was happening covertly, um, which reminds me of another story, because I've got a lot of stories of, you um, a a, a a a an engineering company so it was a pretty heavily engineering male dominated workplace and they had a they had a very admirable commitment to hire more women and they hired more women and then they would say some of the people would say well i don't know we we hired these women but they don't know how to have a fight and they don't know how to like they don't they don't they're conflict averse But what was happening was that they were doing something similar to what you described. So they would be going and getting input. Both of you described it in different ways. They'd be going around and getting input, talking to people and bringing them along and incorporating their ideas and getting them on board. So they didn't have these big blow ups. So that's how they managed conflict, right? They listened, they incorporated ideas, they collaborated. And and then they got they, they were uh, in some ways penalized for it because it didn't match the expectation of how people did conflict. Uh, so yeah. fortunately, there were people in that organization who stood up for those uh, the women in there and said, yeah, no, no, yeah,
0: they do it in a different
1: way. <laughs> you can't hire for diversity and then expect people to be exactly like you it doesn't work mm. that way.
2: Mm. And, and, and I love that. I think it's uh, it's good. I think at least uh, for myself and I've seen with others is, like you said, there are hard and fast rules for organizations, like right? You know, there are a limited set of those things, right? Like don't threaten people, you know, kind of these universal rules, so to speak. But then I think uh, a danger comes when that area of hard and fast rules, universal rules get brought into things that aren't that, right? You're taking, you know, uh uh areas where there's multiple ways to accomplish the same goal and making a universal judgment about it right and i think at least a growth area for me has been opening up like okay there are multiple ways to uh, have healthy conflict right (laughs) there's not one way right you know um and so i think being open to experiment and try uh different ways to accomplish that and i think uh i think um it's something I've noticed in general with people is that they, there's, there's this desire to have binary answers for everything, when especially in engineering and organizations, there's a lot of non-binary answers. Yeah. <laughs> there are binary answers in some things, but there's a whole range of things, especially in development, working with people, experimentation, that it's it's more proverbial and more experimentation and more try and do. And I think, at least for me, helping people, uh, helping people and myself see that, Hey, maybe this isn't a, uh, universal law. Maybe there's another way to do this, you know, (laughs) is, uh,
1: well, I mean, when there is one correct solution, it makes sense to, and and only one correct solution. It makes sense to do that, but, you know, and there are domains where that is appropriate. Yes. You know, um, but there's, you know, most of the work that we do isn't in that domain. Some of it is, but, yeah, it isn't. Yeah. And I, I think that actually causes a lot of problems in organizations where they try to uh, apply a solution that will uh, fit a, a, a simple, obvious domain, but they're in a complex domain. It causes I, endless, endless problems.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, we're starting to hit the end of our time box, but uh, oh. you know, I've learned a lot from this. Um, is there anything you like to share and plug before uh, we close out this episode.
1: Well, uh, if you're interested in learning more about how to adjust the environment so that people can be more creative and effective, uh, whether you're a manager or not, you might wanna come to my PSL workshop, Problem Solving Leadership. We're um, working on the schedule for one in October. And we will um, probably open registration in July. So if you want to hear more about that workshop, shoot me an email at esther at estherderby.com.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again so much for being on the show. It's, yeah, it's my pleasure. pleasure. It's
1: nice to, nice to talk to you both.
2: Awesome. Right on. And so uh, to our audience, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on these topics. You know, uh, how do you define management? How do you think management should be rethought? How do you think change should be nurtured? Um, you know, how, Uh, you know, what are ways you've seen uh, help people get their fingerprints on change and, uh, you know, things like that. And so uh, please like and subscribe. Please share this episode with uh, someone you think it could uh, help or inspire a conversation with. And uh, uh, until next time, have a good one, everybody, and talk to you later. Bye.